We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and here with me as always... Simona Falanga. And today's like kind of a weird episode because we're probably we're actually talking more about modern day stuff than anything archaeological. Today we'll be talking about primitive breeds. What are they? Uh, how are they still in existence to this day? Just all kinds of stuff like that. So I guess the best way to start this off is to explain what a primitive breed is. Basically, it's a specific type of breed of animal that's not really changed at all from their uh, ancestors, uh, which you'll probably recognize a lot of these ancestors because we've talked about domestication a lot on this podcast. No. I know, right? Also, my favorite thing about researching this episode was I found a report by uh, M.L. Ryder in, from 1981 and straight up just say, I d- primitive breeds are unimproved breeds, which is kind of harsh, I think. A little bit. <laughs> so pretty much, but it was just really funny. It was like the first sentence of this report. Which it makes me kind of want to be that harsh in my actual reports. Yeah, I could give the primitive breeds some love. The, the, yeah. Usually they're, they're a lot healthier and hardier than uh, some of the modern day breeds for the most part anyway. But I just like the idea of being like this garbage breed of whatever. <laughs> like, like, please calm down. I just started this report. The way to see it with primitive breeds is basically, if you like all the ancient animals we've been discussing about, you may also like (laughs) 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 this series of um, animals. I mean, uh, of course, primitive breeds uh, pretty much solely refers to domesticates, so your sheep, cattle, pigs, horses, which, as you said, showed little to no changes. Well, not necessarily their wild ancestors, but sort of the very first... Yeah. Created varieties. Yeah, I couldn't think of what was the actual word for that. And I still don't actually know. Do you know off the top of your head what that is? Because, yeah, it's not the wild predecessor, but it's like the next one. This is why I'm not like in doing genetics and stuff. I don't understand anything. Well, because I guess some of these 
primitive breeds, uh, which, which is the correct term. So it makes me itchy every time, but it, it is the term. Yeah. <laughs> I guess some of them do indeed still look very much alike the wild ancestor. So we'll see with certain breeds of sheep that look uncannily like a, a wild mufflon. Mm-hmm. But I think so it would be either the wild ancestor or just the very, the earliest sort of form of this domain, of this animal as a domesticate. Yeah. Which I guess the term would also be primitive. Yeah, it's not the, the greatest term I feel like we can agree on, <laughs> but, it, but technically it, it's the term, I guess. It, it's a term that it's there. So. Yeah, because I remember when we were first talking about doing an episode about this, I actually was confused, as I normally am, but uh, it was mostly because there's a difference between primitive breeds and then like the kind of movement you see with rewilding and reviving extinct species. So basically, like we were saying before, primitive breeds, they still exist. They've been a continuous lineage for the most part. Uh, We're not necessarily bringing extinct species like mammoths back when we talk about primitive breeds. I think it's just uh, because I think the support towards sort of increasing the number of breeding pairs of primitive breeds or heritage breeds would be mm-hmm. another, perhaps better term for it. Um, yeah. In a way, like it's, I think one of the main reasons behind it is its, it's applications in conservation science, but also land management. Because you find yeah. that a lot of these earlier breeds are much hardier than some of the current commercial breeds. So they'll be able to not necessarily consume less food, but make the most out of the food that is available to them. So in a way, they're more economical to keep. Yeah, and they have they put less of a strain on the environment. So a lot of people and organizations have been championing so these primitive breeds. Yeah, and there's a there's a one specific case that we'll talk about later in the episode, but their whole thing is that they want to bring back or at least continue the existence of what they refer to as keystone species. So species who had uh, a huge influence on the environment, and uh, the idea being that we bring these kind of species back and uh, a more populous that we can help with, you know, environmental changes that are happening. And uh, I think this is also a good place to also talk about that this is, you know, you might be listening to this going, why are they talking about this? This has nothing to do with archaeology. Well, you're wrong because it does. Uh, (laughs) It's basically the idea of like primitive breeds and stuff like that, you can kind of consider more of an applied zooarchaeology. There's a lot of different ways to talk about applied zooarchaeology, but a lot of times it has to do with conservation science and using zooarchaeological data to kind of provide the biological and cultural information that we might not have right now uh, and apply them to the present and the future. Yeah, because I mean, it could be something as simplistic as sort of looking at extinct species and where they went extinct and why. So that could be a good lesson for the future sort of going forward about uh, stopping animals from going extinct. Please, please make it stop. Um, (laughs) But also it it can be very useful in, as I mentioned before, in land management and wildlife management. Because if you do a study, like, for example, we've discussed in our earlier episode that the brown hare has actually been introduced to Britain and it's not native to Britain. Hmm. So having that information, perhaps not so much of the brown hare, because their numbers aren't terribly high as as far as I'm aware. But with other species, uh, they can inform decisions on which species to encourage and which to control if need be. Mm -hmm. 
look at like sort of the great squirrel dimension one or you can also look at i don't know like areas where a particular species of breed has going has gone extinct mm-hmm. if you, you find that out from the zoo archaeological data set so then you look into reintroducing those animals back in those areas so it can, it can inform decisions sort of in that aspect as well yeah and i think people kind of don't consider like to be honest before maybe like two years ago i didn't even know about applied uh, zoo archaeology and i think it's easy to kind of not even think about that as something as a like a methodology because we always think of zoo archaeology and archaeology in general as something in the deep deep past where you're only dealing with you know extinct species species from prehistory stuff like that but you know there's plenty of examples of more historical zoo archaeology so something that's relatively more recent than say like the iron age and using zoo archaeological data from species that have kind of more recently gone extinct or have at least have had a huge loss in population in a certain area and being able like you said to apply that kind of data to looking at how can we reintroduce them into this area how do we continue to let them thrive in this area what are the pros and cons of them remaining in this area all stuff like that and it's it's really interesting and it's a really cool way to see how the past can be used to uh, deal with the present and the future it's, I think it's it's incredibly useful and incredibly important because at the end of the day, okay, we mainly deal with historical and prehistorical data sets and we learn a lot about past civilizations and that's great. That's really important. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like, it'll be great to do something more with this data set that can actually have an impact, a good impact on society today as well, mm-hmm. not just learning about the past for learning's sake, if that makes sense. No, yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's where the emphasis is on referring to it as applied to archaeology, because you are actually applying that to, you know, something. I mean, I don't want to say applying it to something that matters, because obviously all archaeology does matter. And it better matter. Otherwise, we'd all be out of a job. You know, it's something that's current, something in progress that we can apply it to, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, that's what I mean. Absolutely. It all does matter. It's just the case that it's great if we can use that knowledge to also have an impact today. Mm-hmm. And another thing, actually, that just uh, came to me, sort of what, how you could use sort of zooarchaeological data sets. Although I guess it'd be much more recent historical zooarchaeology, you could be, in a way, could help us move away from some of the highly commercialized breeds that are sort of very fast growing. They tend to have a plethora of health issues attached to them. So looking at sort of more historical and heritage breeds or the way they looked at in the past can help us perhaps to revert our breeding back to an healthier animal. Yeah, no. So I say it's a lot more recent with dogs, but again, I'm going to make the the pug example again, because if you look at historical photos of pugs, they look, you probably wouldn't be able to recognize them. Yeah. Like their facial structure and morphology was quite different overall a much healthier animal so of course it's much more recent than say looking at you know primitive sheep from five thousand years ago having that knowledge about what they used to look like and the fact that they were healthier animals can help us in the future to perhaps breed back to that so you have a, a breed that is a bit less problematic yeah no exactly and also that just reminded me that since recording our dog episode um it's ruined pugs for my partner. <laughs> so every time he sees pugs, he just gets really sad. 
at least he looks at to the show. He looks at me and he's just like, he's like, you ruined it for me. They used to be so cute. Now it's just sad. I know. I mean, unless, they're still so cute. It, unless it's a Roman pug. True. Unless it's a Roman. <laughs> oh, oh, Get your face out of there, miss. So the dog is on the show. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, Applies Archaeology, like we were saying, is so cool. And also, I'm super jealous of the uh, people who get to actually work with these animals because it's the closest thing you'll get to, like, you know, people. It's, it's like a very cliche thing, I think, when people talk about archaeology and they kind of romanticize it as like, oh, it's like time traveling. I don't get to touch the past. But these people who work with these primitive breeds, like, get to... You know, like, you're having the they do walk in herds moment. <laughs> it's so cool. Like I have, um, yeah, I'll talk about them later. But I have a friend who uh, works with uh, primitive breeds of sheep, and it's the coolest thing in the world. And I love it so much. <laughs> it was so jealous. It's so cool. Yeah, I think. Like speaking of which, like real quick sort of OT. Think I didn't think I'd ever see something as cute in my life that a Zoe lamb. I know, Zoe lambs are so cute. And it's just, it's great to think that there were probably people that, like, you know, ages ago that were also being weird about how cute they are, like I am right now. Well, I mean, if you saw, because they look, uh, we'll get into it later, but we do, they do look, look an awful lot like the wild counterpart of the sheep. So if you're yeah. just rolling around 6,000 years ago and you saw one of them, wouldn't you want to domesticate it? <laughs> You'd want to take it home. They realize, oh, I can also get milk out of this. Score. <laughs> yeah, so real, truly with primitive breeds, we get to realize the uh, intentions behind people in the past domesticating these animals. It was cute. Like, I, yeah, like, I don't blame them. They're pretty cute. And also, I just realized it must be so cool to... Oh, God, this sounds morbid. But it must be so cool to have uh, access to their bones. Um, okay. I mean, like, think of it, you know, like a Zoark thing, right? That's what we do. But it will make for a great data set because you can compare sort of Neolithic specimens with, say, modern-day specimens of this primitive breed and see yeah. how, how much they alike they look. Sorry to bring it immediately to dead animals, <laughs> but I guess that's kind of our podcast, so I don't know what else anyone would expect. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, have you eaten today? Um, I, I ate this morning. Uh, so no, not, no, no tea yet? No, I did have a giant iced coffee, though. Some real New York stuff. Just because we'll be talking about a lot of um, animals that are, are used for, for meat in this episode. Yeah, no, to be fair, this is, like I said at the, at the start, this is a bit of an unusual episode for us because we've obviously talked about more modern stuff. I mean, technically all our case studies are modern because they're all, you know, archaeological research. I think it's kind of interesting for us to talk about these primitive breeds because they are living, breathing animals that are still exist. They're still here. Um, and it's really interesting to kind of talk about, you know, the, the what's the word, uh, the positives of kind of maintaining these breeds and like how we can gain so much data from uh, studying these breeds. And um, I think it's also funny because all of us are used to working with dead things. So if I like, like if I went, and sort a real sheep, I would not know what to do with it. 
just leave it be because chances are they don't want to come anywhere near you that's true i would not do anything but like it's like um i've had friends who are not in the the uh, field uh ask me questions about animals before and I'd, i'd have to be like i don't They'll be like, oh, what bird is that? Or whatever. And I'll be like, literally, I could not tell you unless you stripped all of the flesh off of it. And I got a chance to look at its bones. I'm not very helpful. Yeah, no, no. Please don't do that to living birds. That, that, that's really funny. But yeah, no, and, um, I have met some of this primitive breed. They're very cute. I've met, I've met a flock of Zoe sheep. They're quite timid. Ugh. Even for a sheep, they're quite, they're, they're quite timid. But they're cute. They are cute. There's so many cute primitive breeds of sheep. And uh, one thing I, I realized when I was researching this is that, uh, yeah, all the information from them are from people who sell their wool. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. It would be like a huge thing, huh? Well, yeah, cause I think you can probably sell it at a premium if it's from a heritage breed. It's probably nice. Okay, maybe, maybe no, no wool for now. I think it's a bit too warm today for that. That is true. It's getting quite warm. But yeah, um, I I think we should probably take a break and then we'll start talking a bit more about these primitive breeds. I feel like we're kind of like, you know, confused almost because we are talking about things in the present tense for once. (gasps) Weird. Super weird. All right. We'll we'll get used to the weirdness and we'll be back after this. Yeah. See you in a bit. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code animals swimsuit check sunscreen check phone charger check don't forget to pack the five hour energy it fits great in a pocket or carry-on and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything now get 20 percent off when you use code 5he travel at fivehourenergy.com Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5hourenergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back uh, here with Archaeoanimals, and we are talking about primitive breeds and applied zooarchaeology today. This part of the podcast, we're going to 
talk a bit more about some specific examples. So I think we should start off with sheep because it's kind of what we were talking about right before we went on break. <laughs> and there's plenty of uh, examples of uh, primitive breeds of sheep. We have stuff like uh, the Icelandic sheep. Um, there's another breed that I'm thinking of, Jacob something sheep. Should have wrote that down. Uh, the, the Jacob sheep, yeah. I believe the Herdwick may also be descended yeah. from sheep that's been introduced by the Vikings. And there's another one yeah. I've never pronounced for the life of me. <laughs> I think that's going to be, well, at least for me, that's going to be a re recurring thing. It already is a recurring thing. I can't pronounce like half of these words. So these sheep, like the Icelandic sheep, um, well, the Icelandic sheep specifically is a short-tailed sheep from Northern Europe. And the idea is that they were probably brought to Iceland by the Vikings. Uh, so thanks for that. But I think the uh, primitive breed that we want to talk about the most is the uh, soy sheep. <laughs> Because they are, cute. they are very, they're very cute and they're very small. Because their they, their name originates from Soe St Kilda, uh, although mm. the sheep itself does not originate from there. Because it was only introduced to the island in 1924. The Soe itself, as a breed, it is believed to have descended from the first sheep that were introduced to Britain in the Neolithic period, and in fact, they do remain very similar to the Mediterranean Mufflon. And so the first domesticated uh, sheep in Central Asia. So they're very, very, very small. They're about a third of the size of a modern sheep. What's really interesting about them compared to other breeds is that they need rooing as opposed to shearing because um, the soe naturally shed their wool. So of course, there's no need to actually sort of shear them with a certain frequency. Those who do produce uh, wool can literally just hand pluck their fleece. Just sounds nice, to be honest. <laughs> just plucking sheep. No, I mean, that was indeed the case for the, um, so the first sheep that were domesticated is just that, I think we may have discussed that in our sheep episode, over the centuries, because I guess we wanted to exert more control about when we harvested the wool or the fleece, we sort of bred them mm -hmm. in a way where they would no, no longer naturally shed their coats. So now sort of we, we have the extra control over it that we have set times when we share the sheep and we have all of the wool all at once. Because that wasn't always the case and it's still not, not the case for the Zoe. Yeah, no, uh, sorry. I got momentarily distracted because I just realized, oh, is any of the primitive uh, sheep based, uh, were they the basis of uh, one of the newer Pokemon? And it, it turns out that the uh, Jacob sheep might have been the inspiration. I'll send you a picture in a bit. <laughs> I tried to, but it didn't work. It's very important. Yeah, Wulu. I, I, I kept you, trying to you... remember the, the, sorry, I kept trying to remember that breed of sheep, but I just could not. There's a lot. There's a lot of sheep. But yeah, for those of you who are um, familiar with Pokemon, uh, specifically the newest game that came out kind of recently, yeah, Wulu and uh, Dubwool, <laughs> which are like my favorite Pokemon now. <laughs> If you haven't seen what it looks like, please Google it. It's very cute. Uh, no one cares about Marie. Uh, Tristan, hmm. it's all about Wulu, baby. <laughs> yeah, just had to derail the podcast with a Pokemon reference. <laughs> and it was the, the, the Manx Lockton. Ah, okay. Which are, by the way, the, the, the sheep that they keep at Butts Ancient Farm. So you, you've met oh, them. Oh, I have met them. You yeah, well, actually, I, I I meant to look up what sheep were at Butzer Farm, and I completely forgot. So I'm glad we were able to include that. 
Yeah, no, they they have um, they're, they're uh, is this the death metal sheep? Yes. Sorry for butting in. Is this the death metal sheep? One of many. I really love these sheep. Uh, you know the sheep that's got the big horns up and down? That's yeah. the one. They, they although, just looks so metal. Although I'm pretty sure the Jacob sheep also have sort of the same horn shape. But yeah, no, they're, they're quite rare, so there aren't many breeding pairs about, and they do mm-hmm. have um, four and, or occasionally six horns. And uh, as Six you, horns? As you may expect. That's from- brutal. <laughs> I think I've got a very like sort of heavy metal photo of some of them somewhere. I've tried to find. It. I'm pretty sure I put it in the sheep episode. Yeah, I was gonna you? say I think it might be on the sheep episode. Basically, just go back to the sheep episode. Yeah. We'll probably talk. You probably already talked about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Well, we just thought we'd mention lots of um, sheep breeds because uh, I do have a sheep dog sat next to me, so I thought she might be able to offer some uh, extra insight. But I think uh, she only cares about a chew toy. Yeah, that's fair. I, I would too. Uh, but yeah, I also feel like when it comes to primitive breeds, like sheep were the first thing I thought of. I don't know about you. Yeah, they're kind of, I, I kind of just associate them maybe because I don't, yeah, I don't want to say that there are more primitive breeds of sheep, but I, I feel like they're definitely more prolific in terms of like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. I think there might be with sheep because when you think about it, in terms of sort of sheer numbers, there's a lot more sheep sheer. about. Sheer. <laughs> sheer. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, bah. Sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Just um, sheep have been kept sort of in, in higher numbers. Uh, yeah. For so long, because if you look at data sets sort of all the way from the prehistoric periods, like chances are that usually sort of your assemblage does tend to be more heavily oriented towards sheep or goat. Mm-hmm. Because you would tend to keep more of them, so you you would get sort of a lot more breeds coming out of it for different purposes. Yep, something that my supervisor kind of uh, sent me like ten comments about on my latest draft of just like you know you know you have to explain why there's so much sheep, right? It's like oh yeah, that's important, huh? Because sheep are a useful all round animal that can be used for wool or meat or milk. So many possibilities. Yeah, apparently you have to explain why these things are in the archaeological record. I, of course, did not know that. I'm writing up my PhD right now. To be fair, no, I guess you'd kind of have to, because otherwise, like, oh, there were many sheep here because... Yeah, no, it, it was a very good point. And also I immediately slammed my head into my table because I was like, I cannot believe I wrote an entire chapter without <laughs> explaining that. Please don't do that. You're not a sheep. You don't have horns. It'd be quite painful. I wish. That'd be so cool. Anyway, speaking of sheep, let's go to uh, the other thing. <laughs> not sheep. The other, not sheep, <laughs> also, but also kind of sheep. <laughs> the not kind of sheep. Yeah, also goats. <laughs> I think the, the one that I've um, mostly looked into is the, the British pim- primitive goat. Which to be are you sure that's a primitive? Are you sure that's a primitive breed? <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know. I'll have to do some more. Oh, I don't know. Um, to be fair, though, the British primitive goat is actually sort of a, a bit of a catch-all term mm-hmm. that encompasses a variety of ancient goat breeds that were introduced, sort of, in the Neolithic or from the Neolithic into the British Isles. So, generally. And be self-explanatory. The British primitive goat is presumed to have descended from the goats that were introduced in the Neolithic period, 
and they were kept historically as a multi-purpose breed mm-hmm. and very, very, very hardy animals as well because they'll be able to sort of make the most out of what they were foraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hardy and just generally very, like, unpicky animals, which I guess that's <laughs> why, I guess, for uh, sort of land management, they, they can be quite useful in present day because they literally, they make the most of it because you can just leave them top of a mountain, happy as Larry, they don't care, they're fine. Happy as Larry, is that a saying? I believe so. Yes, it is. It's a saying. <sighs> but uh, you're just going to have to acclimatize to living here and, you know, getting used to our sayings. Ugh, no, never. Who, who's, happy in, who's happy in New York? Like, what's the, what's the equivalent? Happy as... I don't even know. New Yorkers aren't happy, so we don't have an equivalent. Oh, yeah. It's a completely <laughs> bizarre concept to us. <laughs> but who's Larry anyway? There's no joy. Yeah, who is? <laughs> no idea. We can Google it after the show. Okay. <laughs> um, last interesting thing about the British primitive goat, that both sexes have horns. Which is so cool. I mean, it's it's I a thing. Maybe not interesting, but it's a thing that's there. It, it's a fact. I feel like I kind of wish I had horns. I feel like I could probably accessorize them really well. <laughs> like any video game where I can have horns, I usually tend to have horns. So you normally go for Canary? No, except for that. <laughs> I just realized, While I was saying that, I was like, but I never play as a Canary in Dragon Age. It's fine. Anyway, moving from goats, we'll go to another, surprise, surprise, another domesticated animal, horses. And I think we talked about this breed of horse in the horse episode. Kind of have to, because I think that's the closest you have to sort of what a wild horse would have looked like. Przewalski's horse. I feel like I definitely didn't pronounce it right back then. I'm not pronouncing it right now. Prowals? I don't know. We're not linguists. Przewalski's horse. I I, I technically am a bit, but let's pretend I'm not. Yeah, exactly. It's fine. Anyway, so it's a wild horse breed from Central Asia. We definitely talked about it on the horse episode because it's probably the only you know, quote unquote, true wild horse that still exists because any everything else that we consider as, you know, wild horses are actually descendants of more form- formerly domesticated, now feral breeds. Uh, but while we were, I was researching this, I actually found out that there is a bit of controversy on the Przewalski's horse. It might not entirely be sure. Przewalski? Przewalski's? Oh, whatever. Someone, someone will tell me how I'm wrong on the internet. It's fine. Apparently, in 2018, there was some research came out that indicated that these horses might actually descend from domesticated horses bred by, by the Batai uh, culture in Kazakhstan. So I wouldn't even be surprised. There's your horse discourse. Yeah, so I guess even our our wild horse isn't really all that wild anyway. I feel like we should refer to, like, as a community of scientists, can we start referring to research that proves other research wrong as hot takes? Sure. Like, just be like, ah, did you hear that? See that spicy take in nature? You <laughs> see that that steaming hot take <laughs> in the Journal of Archaeological Sciences. Yeah. But I guess in many ways, sort of this um horse breed is sort of to this day the way we would picture prehistoric horse. 
Because I think one of the main things I think that was brought up, because not necessarily in a scientific manner, the Shravalsky horse looks an awful lot like uh, the horses depicted in some of the cave paleolithic cave paintings. Yeah, no, and that's actually something that uh, I guess we haven't really talked about in terms of some good things about primitive breeds is that it gives us the kind of not the 100% accurate image of what these uh, animals look like in the past, but like a pretty decent idea closest if you like this you'll also like (laughs) yeah it's 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 like a nice difference from say like people like doing conceptual uh drawings of dinosaurs and then finding out they're all like chickens or whatever you're like i don't know do (laughs) that's my understanding of it i'm not a paleontologist nor am i nor do I want to be. Anyway, uh, so that was kind of the only real like primitive breed we have for horses, but uh, I believe you found one for cattle. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a variety of um, ancient cattle breeds. I think the one I thought I'd bring the example back to Italy. No. Um, with the Chianina cattle. Although, to be fair, to be fair, it wasn't just there in the Roman period. It was believed to be around since before the Roman period. Everyone, check off your box on the Archeo Animals bingo card for Rome. <laughs> oh, we should make some. We should make oh, bingo cards. Yeah. Uh, right, I've got taxes. Rome. Alex hasn't eaten. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tristan interjects and is shot down immediately. Ah, oh, we got a, got a number Sassy of these. Savona. Yeah. That doesn't happen. Simona has a zinger. Yeah. Ah, yeah. No, that's a special one. That's the one with like that's the middle bit. That's the star. <laughs> that's the star <laughs> bingo one. You know. Uh, we gotta do this. Uh, Talk about it later, but yeah, we gotta do this. We gotta monetize this. Yes, Kenina cattle. Uh, so they're, they're very peculiar looking in a way because they they fur well their hairs are white, but their skin is black. So they, they've huh. got a black skin pigment, including a black nose and tongue, but the actual fur is white. Jeffa was quite striking. And uh, initially, it was used mainly as a, a draft animal, so like for working purposes, and as a, as a sacrificial animal. <laughs> but um, you, you'll be pleased to know that uh, in present-day Italy, Kenina cattle are no longer sacrificed to the gods, but they are indeed kept for meat. <laughs> Oh, that's what you said. Sorry. <laughs> sacrificial? Sacrificial, that's the one. There you go. <laughs> I, was, I just kept it going. I was like, that's probably a Roman word. I mean, in its root, I believe it is. Yeah. yeah but never mind. Yeah. Never mind. Also, I, I just pulled up some pictures of uh, these cattle, and they are amazing to look at. Yeah, no, they're oh, they're big ones. Oh, they're big, yeah. Ah, oh, look at this chunky boy. <laughs> Though, like, I've not managed to find a a name for the breed per se, for sort of another sort of, of um, that's my take of what I think is sort of very primitive looking cattle. Because I noticed um, last time it was in Sicily, I believe it was in May last year, uh, I was um, in a bit of a traffic jam, as in there was a, there were a load of cattle just happily crossing the road. So I was stuck <laughs> on a mountain road for some time. They're very, all, all incredibly Sicilian. As you do. And it was, uh, I think it was the first time that I'd uh, seen any cattle sort of during my time down mm-hmm. uh, since I'd learned more about zoo archaeology 
and more just about sort of livestock in general. So I think it's like it was almost like it dawned on me because I paid attention to this cat almost for the first time. And I noticed how like they, they're all like both the male and female were quite small, sort of reduced in size, but both sexes seem to have just humongous horns. <laughs> and in a way, even though I'm not sure what breed that was, so they made me think of what I'd imagine cattle would have looked like sort of in the Iron Age, sort of when they were a little bit smaller and then they get sort of a bit bigger in the Roman period and then they get smaller again because that's what cattle do. So I found they're <laughs> quite small, but more than anything, they're quite lean as well, although that might have to do with the territory because if you keep your cattle on a mountainside, they need to be agile enough so to move on the move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> upon the mountain uh, path. Uh, <laughs> it's only funny when I do it, Simona. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> but I'll, I'll put the photo in the show notes. Yes. Bingo. There you go. <laughs> photo in the show notes. Yep, there you go. All right. Well, as you, everyone else clears off their bingo cards for the next segment, uh, I think we're going to take a break and we'll be back with some case studies. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. And we are back. And uh, just before we talk about our case studies, there's actually one domesticated animal that we didn't bring up in uh, the last segment and that's dogs and I the reason why dogs are kind of like separate from them is because it's kind of complicated that's kind of the gist that I've gotten it's a a way to put it yeah so you know like you're saying the the terminology is primitive breeds now the thing about dogs is that you have primitive breeds and you have ancient breeds and i know what you're saying you're going alex what's the difference isn't that kind of like the same thing and honestly that's how what i think too there's actually uh societies of for primitive breeds and uh ancient breeds because you know breeding is such a big thing uh, with dogs, particularly with, you know, show dogs and stuff like that. Uh, So apparently primitive breeds refers to breeds that adapted and evolved without human influence. So the New Guinea Sane dog, the Dingo, the Carolina dog, those are all technically primitive breeds. New Guinea Singing dog? I have no idea what that is. Does it sing? I mean, I guess. Otherwise, doesn't that false advertising? I mean, the, the, the person who named it that has probably not been around for a couple hundred years anyway, so... But we can still probably sue them, just saying. Give me singing dog. Oh, they look beautiful. Actually, look at them. Are they, are they gorgeous? Well, they look uh, like... <gasps> they look like... An, an, an Akita Inu and a Dingo had a child, and he'll beat the stock. Oh. Oh, they're weird look they're like I mean they're not weird looking they're just very they're interesting looking <laughs> but yeah I can see how that they would probably be a primitive breed well though it's very it's very closely related to the dingo so there you go uh there you go okay uh yeah google it if you don't know what it is uh but then there's also ancient breeds and those that's actually a phrase I've come across before researching uh dog domestication for some side projects 
and uh, ancient breeds are descended from dog breeds that are more closely related to wolves than other domesticated species, like the Spearian Husky, the Bazenji, stuff like that. Uh, and if you're thinking, hey, this is still kind of confusing, don't worry, it's very confusing because no one can still agree on dog domestication. So <laughs> I guess that's kind of just uh, what we have with dogs. It's a mess. Just like dogs. Just like dogs, a mess. They're beautiful, beautiful messes. <laughs> They are very beautiful messes, scalitally huge messes in a lot of breeds. <laughs> anyway, so as always, this segment is our case studies segment. So we're going to talk more about uh, soy sheep because they're the best and very cute. So um, as we said in the previous segment, uh, soy sheep are so named from uh, soy St. Kilda. So, of course, it makes sense for us to talk about the St. Kilda Soy Sheep Project. Uh, it's a joint project between the University of Edinburgh and the Imperial College of London. And uh, its main focus is basically looking at the population dynamics and the ecology of uh, soy sheep, specifically how the populations kind of fluctuate with time. And this is where that kind of cool applies to archaeology thing kind of comes in. Because, you know, this is something that you can do, actually do with this species. You know, none of us can go and look at, say, the population dynamics of the auroch in real time right now. But because soy sheep and other primitive breeds still exist, you can do that kind of work. And it's, it's super cool. And they're just so darn cute. <laughs> they are. Because I guess, like, St. Kilda is also, because of course there's soy sheep around elsewhere, because mm -hmm. St. Kilda being... You know, on a small island, it'll be sort of your perfect study because sort of like much like I guess the study being carried out on the Icelandic sheep in Iceland. Yeah, uh, the chance that you know that the breed has been sort of left there be for an extensive amount of time without too much outside influence. Mm -hmm. So you got a more controlled study there. Yeah, I believe with the St. Kilda project, it's specifically looking at a population from Village Bay. It's, this is a project that's apparently that's been going on for a very long time, uh, since the 80s, I believe. So because you have that long period, you can look at so many different uh, factors. So some other themes include the effects on vegetation due to grazing, uh, the changes in genetics and evolution of the sheep. I believe they're also surveying the parasite fauna, which is something I would not have thought of in a million years to look at, and the physical effects of aging among the sheep and the ways that kind of affects more of a say like deformities and bone modeling and things like that it's extremely cool yeah no i'm, I'm super jealous i want to do research like this yeah that's no, no, it's incredibly interesting i think we have selected here uh, um some of the most famous <laughs> renowned i love this uh if you go on we'll put a link to the project uh, as always in the show notes <laughs> they actually have like uh, like a wall of fame of some of their most famous sheep and it's delighted me. So of course I'm going to bring it up uh, in this segment. So here's uh, three of their most famous sheep. So we have Old Green 23. Uh, so they basically, their naming conventions for the sheep were uh, like color coded and also numbers, but they also had nicknames. So uh, Old Green 23, I believe, was also nicknamed Clark after Clark Kent, a.k.a. Superman. Uh, <laughs> he lived between 1984 to 1992 and held the title of the largest ram in the population and had over 40 offspring during his time. Oh, my. All right. Old Green right. was busy. <laughs> yeah, Superman, baby. 
then we have New Green uh, 007, oh, no. which I believe was just <laughs> yeah, I believe was uh, obviously nicknamed Bond because um, you know. Apparently lived between 1992 and 1997, and was born without any observable horns, and that's something that can happen with soy sheep. So uh, yeah, no, just uh, I've seen pictures of uh, New Green 007, and it's just a very, very cute sheep with nothing going on up there. I mean, horn wise, not like brain wise. Is that maybe why the, why the 007? Because like he was in disguise. He had no horns. I don't know. I think that was just the that number convention. I have no idea. I, I, to be fair, I, I totally understand the idea of not really having a rhyme or reason to some some uh, labeling. Because if you looked at like my bones for my project right now, it's it's like a a free for all. It doesn't make sense. Uh, and then we also have uh, old green. No zero four two. Yeah, Old Green 042. Uh, she lived from 1984 to 1995 and had a new lamb every year between 1985 and 1994. And that included some years where she had twins. So she, in total, gave up birth to 15 lambs, which is also wild. And I assume she must have uh, gotten with Old Green 23, right? I mean, she must have done. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the 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 researchers involved in the projects can look in project and tell us more about it. Uh, I want I want to hear a tell all book. Yeah, give us the hot gossip on these uh, sheep. Where's that? I don't care about the like population dynamics report. Give me your tabloids about these sheep, you cowards. What sort of like <laughs> uh, make a sort of reality TV show style? Oh my gosh, I would love that. That'd be amazing. I mean, technically, technically, you could say that it was like a observation of uh, population dynamics uh, in real time, but it would just be a reality show, I guess. The, the one, the one reality show I would watch. Just the show, yeah, like looking at a sheep and St. Kilda. That sounds great. Also, if you're on Twitter, this isn't related to the St. Kilda sheep, but um, someone I'm mutual with on Twitter, at Neolithic Sheep, they are a shepherd and they look at uh, and look after soy sheep as well. And it's extremely cool. I think they're also at Neolithic Sheep on Instagram. So if you want to see some some soy sheep all the time, follow that account. Yeah, and I guess the, the um, second case study that we've got here is the Tauros program, which is part of the Rewilding Europe initiative, which I'm sure some of you may have heard about. And uh, it's in collaboration with the Tauros Foundation. And what they're looking at doing is basically trying to backbreed cattle back into, well, at least something that resembles the aurochs. Yeah, this was the wildest thing because I originally found this during research and I was like, oh, cool. So this is like primitive cattle and then didn't really read through it. And then when I did read through it, I was like, wait, this is kind of wild. <laughs> this is some bonkers stuff that they're trying to do. Because in a way, no, they're, they're choosing sort of particular um, sort of genetic or like morphological traits that are comparable yeah. to the aurochs and sort of um, through backbreeding. They're going to try sort of like select specific types of cattle and sort of and again backbreed to like a species of cattle that resembles the aurochs. I'm sure like we're all under the understanding that of course the aurochs is extinct, 
you can recreate something that looks like an Aurochs, but an Aurochs it ain't. Yeah, no. Uh, so this is like a weird case study, but I, it's a case study I still want to talk about because it's technically not about primitive breeds that exist, but it's more about making a primitive breed from modern breeds. It's very confusing. It's a lot of genetic stuff, I guess. But to be fair, like primitive breeds are sort of involved. I think they've done uh, a genetic study, um, yeah. which was uh, funded by the Giraffe Foundation, uh, mm. and they were trying to identify the heritage breeds today that share the most DNA with the aurochs. So I think inevitably the ones that came up in the research are sort of more heritage breeds as opposed to sort of very modern commercialized breeds. I think overall, sort of like two of the main sort of types uh, that came up in the research were the Iberian and the Podolian breeds. And by Podolian, there's a specific group of uh, heritage cattle breeds found mainly in Italy and the Balkans. Mm -hmm. So like they, these two types seem to have, uh, among others, seem to share the most DNA with the Aurochs. So, so far that kind of confirmed the Tauros Foundation was sort of the, the breeding program was on the right track and they've identified a few more that have, well, desirable traits for lack of a better term, but like traits that resemble those of the Aurochs. Yeah. So in a way like you will be choosing more heritage breeds that sort of have changed less from the Aurochs compared to other cattle breeds. Yeah, so I guess my question really is like, let's say, you know, their project's a success and they, they develop this kind of breed that's closer to Aurochs. So like, do we consider that a primitive breed? Is it just like a, 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 a it is a modern attempt at a primitive breed, but like, how do we refer to that? You know? It would be like a, a, modernly, a modern, uh, I can speak words, uh, a modernly engineered primitive breed or an ancient looking breed yeah it's it's really it's interesting because i i don't think there's really anything there probably is and i just can't think of it but the idea of this breed coming out of this project is an interesting way to kind of think about applied zooarchaeology and this being a very <laughs> a very applied zooarchaeology i guess in a way I think something similar has been done with, well, was attempted, I'm not sure what came of it, but with the mammoth. The sort of oh, trying yeah, to use yeah, the yeah. archaeological mammoth DNA implanted sort of in living female elephants. Mm. It's just... Yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting. And I guess there's also kind of questions of, you know, so like the, the reasoning behind this entire initiative has been that the Rewilding Europe initiative has identified the auroch as a keystone species for the prehistoric European environment. Uh, so the idea being, if we bring these species back, you know, we can backtrack our environmental kind of, all, all, uh, the environment back to a, a slightly more healthy place. But yeah, then it brings up questions of, you know, is this ethical? And then is this actually going to even help our environment? Uh, I don't know the definitive answers to that. But... I mean, uh... In terms of ethics, in all fairness, like over thousands of years, people have like the way we've bred every single domesticate has been uh, based on traits that we at the time believed to be desirable. Yeah. So in a way, like it's not much different as in it's either all ethical or it all isn't. Oh, yeah. No, I'm definitely not saying that there is a, a definitive, you know, 
answer to that question, but I think it's an interesting thing to kind of consider. And like I said, you know, I don't even know how helpful this would be, especially in our environment these days. You know, things have changed so much. I mean, no way they would occupy a niche. But then again, it, have to, it, it, would, it would have to be, which I'm sure that's what Rewilding Europe have got in mind, it would have to be part of a wider project. Because if you create a cattle species that resemble to the aurochs and you, you just set it free, so in so the, the European forests, many of which are lacking the original predators that used to be it, yeah, you're going to create exactly. yourself with like, much like the deer population in the UK, you're going to get like an overpopulation of this massive herbivore that nothing can kill. And it's just going mm. to spread. But I'm yeah. sure like that is probably part, well, it, I'm sure it's part of a sort of a much larger sort of project that would involve predators and more wolves and bears and sort of try and reconstruct the ecosystem as it used to be. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously we're looking at this out of context because, you know, just talking about this episode in general and the idea of primitive breeds. But yeah, you're right in that you these kind of initiatives mean nothing if they're not part of a wider approach to the ecosystem yeah, which uh, i'm sure i'm sure it's the case for a wilder in europe because i think they're looking a lot at a european bison or lynxes yeah um, I, I think are they also looking at oh no that, i think that's more of a very specific thing with wolves here but yeah, UK, no. You know, that's uh, well, the ones that in the southwest, I believe, that's um, a study from a, a Swedish uh, university. Okay, yeah, the that's there. But I guess wolves would be part of. I think Rwandan Europe is involved with that, but in a way, also think trying to come up with subsidies for farmers that lose lose livestock to sheep, sort of, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's also interesting because I feel like, you know, I've definitely, before this episode, I definitely had heard of reintroduction uh, schemes with uh, species such as wolves, which aren't, you know, you don't necessarily think of as ancient species, but the auroch is such a weirdly unique kind of thing to try and bring back. It's it's just really interesting to me of like which species we decide to try and kind of like put back into the environment but then to be fair it's not been extinct that long in the that's true yeah that is true yeah it was the same with the wild boar in britain which is technically Mm. now reintroduced but it's uh it, it had not been gone that long although like one thing that i personally wonder but then again i come as someone who's got very little knowledge uh on the on the on the in in general in life and in the ins and outs of this particular subject i wonder sort of to fill that ecological niche of sort of this wild roaming cattle sort of do you need a legit aurochs or say some of our more like sort of the the sicilian sort of mountain uh cattle that was talking about earlier Mm -hmm. so the sort of range sort of essentially wild in the mountains won't they potentially do just as well or does it have to be something that looks like an aurochs? Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like I feel like we've ended up having way more questions than answers in this episode. But as we kind of take it to the close, you know, if anyone's got some thoughts on this, feel free to uh, send us uh, your comments about this whole idea of kind of like the Taurus project, and you know, not necessarily primitive species, but kind of uh, creating a primitive species. What do you think about it? Is should ethics be involved? Will it be useful in the environment? Please let us know, because uh, we are on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals. And um, yeah, you know, I think that's about it for this episode. Mm. You may go have dinner. 
Yay. To be fair, uh, you've been very good this episode. Yeah, uh-huh. she's only mentioned it twice, and she's only complained about it once, so. <laughs> All right, this episode's over. I'm gonna no worries. eat my pulled pork angrily. <laughs> all right, catch us all next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.